thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. On the program this week. It is indirectly the reason why more than two-thirds of people in the world today die of. We're exploring the world of ageing research. Can we extend our healthy lifespans or even live forever? I'm Georgia Mills and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. On a hot August day during the year 1900, Queen Victoria was still on the throne, Einstein was working at what would one day become his theory of relativity, and the Ottoman Empire was still standing. And also, a baby was born on an island in Japan. And what makes Nabi Tajima especially unusual is that she is still alive today. At the age of 117, with over 160 descendants, she is the last survivor to see the 19th century, and just one of a few supercentenarians to make it over 110 years old. But many of us won't be so lucky, with age-related decline and disease coming for us a bit earlier. So this week I'm exploring the science of ageing. Why does it happen? What can we do to stay young? And why are some people looking to purchase young blood? But first, is your age as simple as the number of candles on your birthday cake? So when we think of ageing, we usually talk about chronological age, the time that has passed since our birth. But all of us have seen or know people that appear much older or much younger than their chronological age. This is because their organism is actually healthier, younger or sicker, older, than other people of their chronological age. This is Maria Peza, the head of product development at a company called Glycanage. They offer a service purporting to measure our biological age. The test, which uses a sample of blood, looks for something inside it called glycan structures, which are found on the end of certain proteins. So they're an important structural and functional element of the majority of all our proteins. In short, this means glycans are involved in virtually all physiological processes that take place in our bodies. Unlike proteins, the structures of glycans are not hardwired in our DNA. This means that they do not have a genetic template, but they can include not just what we inherit, but are crucially affected by all that we have done in our lives. So they're basically impacted by a variety of biological and environmental factors. Okay, and how do we know there's such there are these indicators of what's going on inside us? Where, where does the evidence for this come from? Yeah, well, this uh, taste is based on 20 years long uh, research period by our multidisciplinary team of scientists uh, that were working in the fields of glycobiology uh, and aging. We have published over 100 uh, peer-reviewed scientific publications. And in these studies that we performed on over 40,000 individuals worldwide, we found that uh, as we age and as uh, we suffer from different types of diseases, our IgG glycan pattern changes. 
so someone who is uh, slightly less healthy would have an older biological age than their chronological age and vice versa. You mentioned there's a genetic component. What in your lifestyle can affect this? We are currently in the process of researching what uh, lifestyle interventions can change our biological age and what it is that influences them. And we have some hints that basically all the factors that we know are necessary for a healthy lifestyle are involved in this 50% component that comes from the environment. This means healthy eating, uh, healthy sleep habits, stressful or stressless environment, exercise, not drinking alcohol, not smoking. So there's nothing uh, new to that. But the glycan age really serves uh, as a kind of wake-up call for the people that might think that they are healthy, that believe for themselves to be uh, leading a healthy lifestyle, and then maybe they're not really always as healthy as they think they are. I got my glycan age tested. I sent off some blood a couple of weeks ago, and I believe you have the results. So I guess... uh, Give it to me straight, Doc. Okay. Uh, are you sitting? <laughs> yes, I'm sitting down. Uh-oh. So, Georgia, uh, your glycan age result is 38, which means that your biological age is 11 years higher than your chronological age. Uh, it's not so good, but um, it could be worse. So, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> you still have much time and room to improve. This might be influenced by your lifestyle, which seems to be pretty stressful. Oh, really? Stressful? Is it? Is it all these radio programs I'm producing are aging me? <laughs> yeah, I guess this is not really helping, is it? I, I'm quite surprised by how bad they are. How far apart do you see in this in people's results the difference between the chronological age and the biological well, age? I was serious when I meant that your results are not that bad, really, because we do see uh, much worse glycosylation patterns than yours. We had some people that turned out uh, thirty plus older than their chronological age was and then they were pretty pretty worried and they, they really started examining uh, their lifestyle choices. And how often do you get it the other way around where someone's sort of doing 10 years younger than they should be? Yeah we do get that's me thank you. <laughs> oh amazing so you're quite happy with your results then? Yeah so I'm not gonna repeat the test ever again. <laughs> I'm just happy with the way it turned out the first time. It's all right for some then. That was Maria Pezet from Glycan Age. So according to this test, my biological age is 11 years older than what it should be. I'll be having a biological midlife crisis any minute. All the more reason to get on with the programme. So what is the process we're actually talking about here? <laughs> what is ageing? Great question. Over to Judy Campisi, a professor at the Buck Institute for Research on Ageing. Of course, we don't have a clear definition of aging except to say that it's a process by which multiple systems within the body uh, decline in function. And it can be driven by any number of external and internal forces that cause this decline. And how does aging affect the different parts of the body? It's interesting that aging affects different tissues in different ways, but also different people and different animals of different genetic backgrounds don't all age in exactly the same way. So there are some declines in function, tissue function, that we recognize as aging, wrinkles in the skin, eventually um, loss of muscle mass and loss of cognitive ability. But not all people and not all 
genetic backgrounds have the same trajectory for each tissue. What is going on then inside us, I guess on a cellular basis, to cause this gradual decline? The short answer is um, we don't know. (laughs) The longer answer is we believe that there probably are a few fundamental processes that we define as a so-called basic aging process that can drive the decline in multiple tissues. So one of them is a cellular process. This is what we study. It's called cellular senescence. And what it is, is a stress response to which cells respond by doing three basic things. The first thing is they stop dividing. This turns out to be a very important mechanism for preventing cancer. You don't want stressed or damaged cells to proliferate. The second thing that the cells do is they begin to secrete molecules that can have rather profound effects on neighboring cells. That is important for alerting the tissue to the possibility that there is a problem, possible damage or possible injury. The other thing is they initiate a process called inflammation. This is a process in which small molecules attract the immune system. And it turns out that that initial attraction is also very important for wound healing and tissue repair. So that's good, right? The problem is the third part of what happens to senescent cells. They don't die very readily. They don't go away. And so now the system becomes chronic. And so with age, we slowly accumulate senescent cells and we experience a condition that has been termed inflammaging. And what it is is low-level chronic inflammation. And virtually every major age-related disease has as either its cause or as a major contributor this process of chronic inflammation. So we believe now that the process of senescence, which evolved for the good purpose of preventing cancer and promoting tissue repair, can become what we term maladaptive. That is, it no longer serves us the good purposes as we age and then begin to drive those aging pathologies. Is aging simply the price we all have to pay for our cells repairing each other and keeping us cancer-free while we're young? There are a number of other ideas about what also might drive ageing, and it's likely to be a combination of things. But why do some of us age faster than others? Some 70-year-olds can run a marathon, and others can barely make it up the stairs. Well, in our environment, everyone knows <laughs> everyone knows what they need to do um, to postpone ageing. So don't smoke, eat a balanced diet, eat your veggies, exercise. Exercise is actually one of the best things you can do to preserve tissue health. And the other thing is choose your grandparents wisely because there is a genetic component. As, as you know, living to be 100 tends to run in families. Judith Campisi from the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. And although it's a little late to change my mind, I do think I chose my grandparents pretty well. I just got to save the date for my grandpa's big 100. Happy birthday, grandpa. But do we know which parts of our DNA relate to our ageing and how much of an effect it actually has? Now, you can actually quantify the impact of genetics, the heritability of longevity. And the heritability of 
human longevity is about 25%. That means that 25% is genetic. Now, that is not much. Having said that, one thing we also know is that uh, heritability of human longevity increases with age. So what it means is that long-lived individuals like centenarians have a much greater genetic component to their longevity than for the rest of us. Joao Pedro Miguelis is from Liverpool University and his journey into ageing research started very early on. So I became interested in ageing when I was a child. I was quite young and I first became aware of my own mortality and and the fact that everyone ages and dies. Um, And that scared me. That scared me a lot, the fact that, you know, my parents were going to age and die and ultimately... No matter how well I took care of my health, I took care of myself, I would age and die. I mean, this was before the internet, so I wasn't even aware that you could study aging. Um, But I was aware of biomedical research. I knew we had medicines that could cure diseases that we couldn't cure decades ago. So I thought I would be the first one to study aging. And not just would I study aging, but I would develop a cure for it. And so from a very early age, I decided that this was the the road I would embark on, understanding aging and ultimately curing aging. And you say curing aging, does that mean you consider aging to be a disease? So that's a very good question, but I think it's mostly an issue of semantics, whether it's classified as a disease or not. Aging as a process, it is very detrimental, and it is indirectly the reason why more than two-thirds of people in the world today die of. So from that perspective, aging is a detrimental process that causes tremendous suffering, uh, diseases, and death. Uh, And from that perspective, it is something that we should try to intervene on and try to fight. So now Joao has a lab devoted to understanding the genomics of aging. Now, what we're trying to do is we're trying to identify which genes are involved in this exceptional human longevity. And hopefully, if we can identify genes, then we may be able to discover drugs uh, or small molecules that mimic the effects of longevity genes for the rest of us, allowing us all to live longer, healthier lives. Okay, how are you trying to pinpoint these sort of super long life genes? We have projects using human data sets like the UK Biobank and the Framingham Heart Study try to identify genes associated with longevity and age-related diseases. Uh, We also have a collaboration with scientists in the US to study supercentenarians. These are individuals that live over 110 years. Uh, And so we're trying to identify genes in these individuals um, that are associated with their exceptional longevity. And have we found any candidates yet? There are a few candidates, but there's nothing definitive. So I mentioned earlier that we know a lot about um, genetic manipulations of aging in animal models. So there's been huge advances in genetic regulation of aging in animals. We know of hundreds of genes that can regulate aging in animals. Having said that, there's a big gap in our knowledge about the genetic basis of human longevity. Uh, And although there are a few genes associated with human longevity, this explain very little of the variation in human longevity, of the heritability of human longevity. So the answer is no, we don't understand yet why some people live over 100 years or 110 years. That still remains to be discovered. João Pedro Miguelis here on The Naked Scientists. You're with me, Georgia Mills, and this week it's my mission to understand ageing. While studying old humans can answer some of our questions, what about old animals? 
as some species rather buck the trend when it comes to getting older. So here we've got two colonies of naked mole rats. So naked mole rats are mammals, uh, they're, they're rodents, but they're rather unusual because they're naked. They have some hairs down the sides of their body they use for orientating themselves, but unlike our stereotypical mammal, they're hairless. That voice you're hearing is Ewan St. John Smith of Cambridge University, who studies these inside-out-looking rats. The polite thing to say is they look like a cocktail sausage with legs and teeth. Why are naked mole rats of interest to scientists? Well, the first thing that made them of interest to scientists when it was observed that they live in these big colonies headed up by a breeding female. So we call this eusocial, where you have one breeding animal in a colony. So a bit like bees and termites. Then they're cold-blooded. That makes them very interesting to scientists. But from a biomedical perspective, what's really interesting is that these animals live for over 30 years. Based on their size, you know, usually bigger animals live for longer. We predict them to live somewhere between three and four years. So trying to understand how they live healthily for a long time is what a lot of scientists are interested in. Um, we have a few ideas about why that is. They're highly resistant to cancer. It used to be the case that people said mole rats don't get cancer, but now there's been one or two incidences. But mice, if you look after them in captivity, usually two-thirds or more will die of cancer between 18 months and, and 28 months of age. So they're highly resistant to cancer. Um, and also it appears that they're highly resistant to cognitive or neurological impairments. As they get older, we don't notice the animals um, struggling to negotiate their colonies. Um, there's not any incidence of them developing sort of neurodegenerative conditions. But that said, there hasn't been a huge amount of study looking at older animals. I mean, the animals that were born in my colonies last week, um, they'll naturally die when I retire. So looking at ageing in a rodent like this is quite diff- complicated. So do we know how they're resistant to cancer? Um, So there's some information about how they're resistant to cancer. It appears their cells have more control on cell growth, so they're better able to detect how cells are proliferating and and put breaks on how that occurs. Um, But at the moment, I think we're still a long way off trying to understand how exactly the mole rat manages that. Um, We have better understanding about some of the other adaptations. So we know they're very resistant to hypoxia, so low levels of oxygen. Um, When a human has a stroke, there's no oxygen being delivered to the brain, and parts of the brain start dying, and that's what underlies the disabilities that people have as a result of a stroke. Um, Similar hypoxia is associated with lots of neurodegenerative conditions, such as Alzheimer's, um, and the mole rat is really resistant to this. So without oxygen, they don't become incapacitated for almost 20 minutes, and when they are given oxygen again, it's as though nothing ever happened. They come back to life perfectly normally. And we've got quite a good understanding on how their brains keep surviving in this low oxygen environment. Um, and similarly, when it comes to looking at their pain behaviour, naked morrots respond perfectly normally to thermal stimuli, so hot and cold. They respond normally to mechanical stimuli, but certain chemicals such as acid, they don't show any response at all. Um, and again, this probably relates to the fact they live in a, this underground environment with high carbon dioxide, low oxygen levels. And carbon dioxide, when it mixes with water, produces acid. So these animals live in a very safe environment with few predators, but it's acidic. So presumably over time, they've adapted to this environment to prevent acid causing pain. And from a clinical perspective, it's quite interesting for us to identify the molecules involved in that acid insensitivity because acidosis is associated with lots of inflammatory pain and also with certain forms of cancer. Wow, these guys are like the superheroes of the animal kingdom. They're just resistant to everything. Why haven't all animals done this? It seems like quite a useful idea. Well, one answer would be that maybe in order to have those things happen, you end up looking like a mole rat and other animals are too vain. (laughs) These mole rats indicate cancer resistance could be an important factor in fighting ageing, but they still do get old and eventually die. But there are some creatures that apparently don't. I'm Aziz, I'm a baker. 
Um, I work at the University of Oxford. Just to be clear, Aziz isn't an immortal animal, but he does study one of them. If you go down to your local river, make sure it's not too deep, and you pick up some rocks and stones at the bottom and turn them over, if the water there is, is quite clean, you'll see little, normally dark brown or black uh, curled up things, and as the light hits them, they'll start to crawl around. And the chances are those will be flatworms, also called uh, planarians. So they've been of interest to scientists for, for well over 100 years um, because you can take these worms and chop them up into little pieces and each little piece will regenerate a whole new worm. Oh, well, so if I took one of these flatworms chopped up into eight, I'd have eight flatworms? You'd have eight flatworms. Each one would be smaller than the original one, but it would regenerate all the missing organs, so the brain, the gut... Uh, the nervous system, the skin would all regenerate and form a whole new worm. So any piece which uh, you cut, all the bits that are missing from that piece are remade in that tissue. Um, and that's done by stem cells. So these animals are chock full of, of really amazing stem cells. And it's these same stem cells that we think are responsible for allowing them to avoid the aging process. Why do we think they don't age? The kind of experiment you'd like to do is sit there forever with them <laughs> and, and make sure they don't age and they're still there. Unfortunately, we would obviously age and we would die before you could prove it. But there's actually a very strong evolutionary argument as to why we think they're immortal. And the reason for that is some species of these worms are entirely asexual and they only reproduce by splitting in half. So that means they actually split somewhere down the middle and the two halves regenerate the missing bits. And because that's how they reproduce, that means that the cells in there, the somatic cells, must be immortal. So most animals, like us, reproduce uh, sexually. So we, we use germ cells, sperms and egg. And so the species continues through this process of sexual reproduction. But these animals have done away with that. They just have adult animals that split in half. So for the species to persist, they therefore must be immortal. So we're looking at things that people theorize or no cause aging in other animals and seeing how the stem cells in these animals have adjusted to cope with that. And so we're starting to find really exciting examples of how they've done that. Some of them are just quite simple innovations that mean a particular problem is dealt with. Others look like they're going to be much more complicated and take a lot more time to try and understand. Oh, right. Can you give me a, a couple of examples? Okay, so a simple example... So we think about humans. As we get older, the risk that we'll get cancer increases. In a, in a planarian that's highly regenerative, here's an animal that's full of stem cells, that, but it can regenerate. So one stem cell gets transformed and divides out of control. And that's really bad, obviously, for the animal because this cell dividing out of control is going to make a clone of cells that grow and cause damage somewhere. But in these animals that are highly regenerative, that damage gets quickly recognized and the other stem cells, which are normal, will respond and repair the damage. So in that sense, for example, these animals avoid the effects of age to do with cancer or transform stem cells, stem cells that have gone rogue by being able to repair the damage very efficiently, uh, which obviously we, you know, we and other mammals uh, tend, tend not to be able to do. Another example I can give you is um, the example of telomerase. So Telomerase is an enzyme that is involved in lengthening the ends of our chromosomes. So because of the mechanism cells use to replicate their DNA, every round of cell division, it turns out, the ends of chromosomes get a little bit shorter 
and shorter and shorter. And that, that actually causes a problem eventually, such that after, after many divisions, uh, unless you do something, uh, the ends of chromosomes get short, so short that the cell has to stop dividing. Otherwise, it becomes unsafe. You start to get instability and you can cause mutations. And this enzyme telomerase is actually responsible for adding back the ends of chromosomes, adding these repeat units called well, telomeres to the ends of chromosomes to, to undo this effect of that happens during cell division. So this problem called the end replication problem, the stem cells and the planarians must have found a way to deal with this. So a very simple hypothesis would be that they're able just to switch on telomerase this enzyme whenever they need it. And of course, that turns out to be what they do. So when they regenerate and when the stem cells proliferate, they just are able to switch on telomerase and add repeats back to make up for the fact there's been lots of cell division. So you might ask the question, well, why don't our cells do that? Well, it comes back again to, to cancer, actually. So it turns out that the end replication problem in mammals and in humans is used as a way to stop cancers forming. So if you imagine a stem cell goes rogue and out of control, it's going to get shorter and shorter, shorter um, chromosome ends. And so if it's cycling out of control and the, 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 the chromosome ends get to critical length, that's a way of shutting down proliferation. So it's a protection mechanism actually against cancer. And so you, in those case, in that scenario, you don't want telomerase switching back on because you want to keep the stem cells that are rogue shut down. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, of course, planarians have a way to, to deal with that, another way, the, the ability to regenerate, to deal with that. So they don't have to worry about that. They can just switch telomerase back on when they need it. Aziz Abu Baker from Oxford University on the immortal planarians. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals. Anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Georgia Mills, and this week, after a rather unfavourable assessment of my biological age, I'm on a quest to find out what scientists are doing to probe the secrets of ageing. We just heard about the immortal flatworms. But really, what's the point of living forever if you're going to be a worm? Could this ever be possible in humans? Dr Aubrey de Grey believes so. Absolutely. There's absolutely no reason why. You know, if you look at 100-year-old cars today... Um, you know, the people who built those cars 100 years ago would be pretty astonished that any of the cars that they built 100 years ago were still working in 2017. But the fact is now, if you look at those cars, nobody would say that it would be impossible for those cars to last another 100 years. You know, the body is fundamentally a machine. It's a really complicated machine, obviously, and it's taking time to figure out how it works well enough to be able to do preventative maintenance with the same level of effect that we can have with a car or an aeroplane. Uh, but the fact is, it's just kind of incoherent, non-scientific, magical thinking to suggest that there would be something there that we inherently couldn't fix. Aubrey de Grey is Chief Science Officer of SENS Research Foundation, a biomedical research charity based in California, which aims to reduce the damage of ageing and allow people to live longer. The body does a lot of different types of damage to itself throughout life as kind of side effects of the way the body normally works. 
And uh, in that sense, aging in a living organism like you or me is exactly the same as aging of a car or in any other simple man-made machine. Um, and so we are adopting very much the same approach that one adopts if one wants to keep a car going longer. And of course, that is simply preventative maintenance. We uh, identify the various types of damage that are accumulating and we identify ways to eliminate that damage. So in the case of the human body, there are seven major categories of damage, uh, things that have many examples within each category, but the classification is useful because for each category there is a generic approach to re repairing or eliminating that damage. So, for example, stem cell therapy is a generic approach to repairing one particular type of damage, namely the loss of cells, where cells die and are not automatically replaced by cell division. Uh, stem cell therapy involves pre-programming cells into a state where you can inject them into the body and they know what to do. They divide and transform themselves into replacements for the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. That kind of thing. Okay, and how are you, how are you sort of looking into these? How are you testing it? Well, there, of course, the details of all of this vary a lot from one project to another. But in general, this is just like any other medical research. We start out by uh, identifying a particular approach that we think is promising for repairing a particular type of damage. And then we work to develop it initially in the laboratory, in, typically in cells, in culture, not even in a living organism. And once we've got it reasonably well um, functioning and working in that context, we, we will start working with mice. And eventually, when it's working well enough in mice, we can start moving to the clinic. And which therapy would you say is the most promising in terms of um, how soon it might be viable? Well, stem cell therapies are, of course, in many cases already in the clinic or in clinical trials. And that applies certainly for some aspects of ageing as well as for early life diseases. So, for example, Parkinson's disease, that's a disease which is very much caused by the loss of cells. There's a particular type of neuron in a particular part of the brain which um, happens to have a much higher rate of cell death than most neurons. And so we end up losing a lot of them, and that's why we get Parkinson's disease. And stem cell therapies to replace those neurons are already very much um, under, underway. Some clinical trials are happening. The very first attempts to make this work were actually made 20-odd years ago. And back then, we knew very little about how to manipulate stem cells, so the results were extremely patchy. Only a few people benefited, but the people who got lucky and did benefit, they were completely cured. So uh, people are very hopeful about that kind of thing. It's worth pointing out that indefinite youth is a highly controversial subject in ageing research, but as organisations like SENS do work on therapies which could delay or maybe even reverse ageing one day, some things are already available, including, if you fork out a great deal, blood. Irina and Michael Comboy from the University of California, Berkeley, realised blood might be important in ageing when they notice something about how people get older. Here's Michael. If someone is elderly and they have you know, full head of hair, and you know, you'd say, oh, wow, that person really has, has great hair, or their, their eyes are exceptionally sharp. You say, wow, that, that person still has sharp eyes. But that, that's kind of the exception to the, to the rest of the body, which often gets old together. So one of the questions we had was, why is that? What, what is it that connects all the parts of the body uh, and makes them age together? 
And so we thought of what could be in common. And, well, the nervous system kind of innervates most tissues. So that was, that was one thought. Then there's the blood that flows to pretty much all the tissues and the vascular system that, that connects all these tissues. So we thought maybe there's something about one of those three, three, three things that, that coordinates aging. Um, if, if, if not causing it, at least kind of coordinates it together. So we had a, an idea, well, can we test this? And the, you know, we thought, well, if we could give a, a transfusion, if you take all the blood out of a, what, what if there was a, a young test subject and it got old, old blood? And conversely, an old test subject that got young blood, would they change their age? And there is a way of doing this. It's a process called parabiosis, which means living besides. It's a rather nice name for a bit of a gruesome process. Sort of like a, a surgical Siamese twinning. Cut down the one side of one animal and, and the opposite side on the other animal. And instead of stitching the skin together on the same animal, you sort of stitch it across to the other animal. And what happens is then the, the healing process connects the skin from one animal to another and connects the blood vessels from one animal to another. And then the, the animals will exchange blood without the researcher having to intervene any further. So in this way, young and old mouse are paired together, and the team can see exactly what happened. We, we looked at, uh, at, at three sort of representative um, tissue types. So one was muscle, the other was liver, and the other one was brain. And what we found is that um, the muscle in the old animal would regenerate a lot better when the old animal was connected to and getting circulation from the, from the young, young partner. Um, and the liver showed some improvement too. There was some, some measurements that we looked at there, uh, sort of sort of proliferating perhaps stem or re, re, regenerative cells in the liver. Um, and in the brain, we looked at the part of the brain that's involved in forming new memories, the, the we call the hippocampus. And we saw uh, increased in, in the, the birth of, of new neurons in that part of the brain. The young animal, conversely, sort of, sort of showed uh, defects in, in all three of those tissues. It, it didn't behave as good as a, as a young animal. Let's say that was sharing blood with another young animal. So from that, we, we kind of concluded that there's probably something in the circulation that's either good and young and was flowing into the old animal and kind of rejuvenating it, or something bad in the old that was getting filtered out by the young animal and also maybe having a negative impact on the young animal. The team started to look at this idea further. Was it really the blood, or was it just having a healthier mouse's organs at work? And what might be in young or old blood that could be having these effects? They're busy identifying possible candidates, including growth factors and hormones, but while they investigate exactly what's going on here, this vampiric idea has already bitten. In fact, there's a company in America selling young blood plasma as part of an ageing trial for $8,000 a pop. There's a couple of reasons why I would be cautious about that. One is that we didn't see much of a benefit to the brain anyway with, again, one sort of mega transfusion of, of, of young blood, whole, whole blood. I'm not aware of anybody who's seen an improvement to an old person or any old animal by young blood. And it, it might just be that they haven't studied it yet. The, this company that is giving the infusions of young plasma um, which is the the non cell part of the blood? It's like you know the, the liquid juice part, not the part that doesn't have the cells in it. Is basing that idea on uh, something that was published by a group where they they dosed old old mice with small amounts of 
young plasma several doses over a couple of week or 10 days or something like that and saw improvement in the cognition of the mice in this maze right and i guess there's actually two companies that, that are this company that's that's giving people for a fee doses of purportedly young plasma not to treat any particular medical disease but just as an anti-aging treatment or something like that i'm not i'm not 100% sure that infusions of young plasma are going to help anyone until i see that being reproduced until i see other groups doing those experiments and, and, and seeing what their results are. So on one hand, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that the treatment will be effective. And on, on the other hand, there's always a risk of getting some sort of complication when you're getting any tissue donation from someone who's not you. There's risk there. And these, and risk, mm. these are risks of, of having some sort of reaction between maybe some proteins in the donor blood. These kind of types of things can cause, uh, can cause organ failure. They can cause autoimmune diseases and would definitely not be rejuvenative. And does blood have to go through the same the same rulings as all uh, other drugs that are being used in America? Blood is largely unregulated. Um, there are there are guidelines that you have to follow for collecting it and storing it and transporting it and blah blah blah, labeling it, that kind of thing. But it doesn't have to go through an FDA approval. That's very surprising. So I suppose if someone comes to you and says, here, I've got some elixir of life, it's blood, you know, be be careful, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, if I was if I was in an accident and I you know, was bleeding out and dying and someone said, you know, the doctor said, well, we're going to have to give you a couple units of blood, otherwise you're going to die, I would say for sure, right? But just to, not just to, to on, on, the, on the off shot that it might make me feel a little younger, and especially since I don't think it works. <laughs> I'm, I'm not convinced it works yet. It looks like I'll have to wait for an anti-aging treatment that has been shown to work in humans then. So, is there anything I can do now to keep my biological age down? Diet heavily affects our health, we all know this, so could it affect our lifespan? Well, you can investigate this using a very special animal. It's a very powerful genetic model system. In fact, some people might describe it as the Ferrari of genetics, so it shares two-thirds of important genes relevant to human disease and also it has a very um, short generation time and only lives between two or three months so it's a very useful system for looking at lifespan. And this animal is the humble fruit fly and that's what Alex Gould and his team at the Francis Crick Institute have been using to investigate the impact of diet during development. Yes, yeah, so I should say really that the, the inspiration for doing this work came from quite a lot of human epidemiological data and also studies done in rodents, which show that the nutrition in early life has a very long-term influence in the ageing process and ultimately in the regulation of lifespan. In general, research is pretty clear. Not enough food when you're developing can be really bad news for your health and your lifespan. But a reduction in just some types of food has an interesting result. Work in rodents suggests that a degree of protein restriction, so a low, moderate to low protein diet during the lactation period, can actually produce a slightly longer lifespan than a control diet. So it may not all be bad news, and it's a question about finding the right kinds of dietary uh, regime and the time during development which the uh, growing animal is exposed to this. Alex and his team put flies in their early stages of development, their larval phase, on a low-protein diet. And then when they were adults, they took them off. And this, it turns out, dramatically affected their lifespan. Depending upon the exact conditions that we use, you could get up to a twofold 
uh, increase in lifespan. And this is at least as large, if not larger, than the more usual kinds of dietary manipulation that have been done in, in Drosophila fruit flies and in other animals, which is to manipulate the diet of the adult not the larva. So if you manipulate the diet of the adult, and this is called dietary restriction or DR, then you can substantially increase the lifespan as well. But the sort of new angle here was that we found that by manipulating the very early diet during development, we could have at least as profound an effect on on lifespan. We don't fully understand how this long-term Uh, mechanism worked but we did find quite surprisingly actually that one of the influences was on the types of lipids the types of fatty acid derivatives that are produced by the equivalent of the fly skin and so it turns out that actually on on a low yeast diet these animals produce less of these lipids and that these lipids at high concentrations can actually prove to be toxic and they can decrease the lifespan of flies And these toxic lipids not only shorten the the lifespan of the fly that produced the lipids, but because they shed them into the environment, they can actually shorten the lifespan of neighbouring flies. So one fly can influence the longevity of another fly. And so, of course, you know, this is all research in, in using this model fruit fly and the relevance of this to other organisms such as mammals um, are not yet clear. But there are some intriguing aspects of similarity. So one of these is the fact that our own skin, of course, produces these similar kinds of lipids to the ones produced by the fruit flies. And these have beneficial function to prevent us from drying out. But also, as in fruit flies, some of these lipids can be toxic. So we'll have to wait and find out if there's any relevance to us humans. Seeing as I'm not a fruit fly, and equally not in my larval stage, do we know anything about adult diets and ageing? One diet that has attracted a lot of attention recently is the idea of caloric restriction. Caloric restriction can be defined in various ways by various different people, but roughly speaking, it's something like a reduction in between 20 and 40% in the number of calories. And this uh, has been shown to produce various kinds of health benefits in a number of model organisms. But I think it's fair to say that it's not really clear what the effects of this would be upon longevity in humans and one of the rather obvious reasons why this is the case is actually very difficult to persuade people to eat a substantially reduced number of calories for long enough to actually assess effects on something like lifespan. However there have been quite a few shorter term studies where people have found substantial benefits in the short term upon things like obesity, cardiovascular health and a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. So as far as the available evidence is around, it does suggest that caloric restriction can produce some health benefits. I think it still remains an open question about whether that will extend human lifespan. You've been very careful to let me know that your findings are in fruit flies only at the moment, but if I put you on the spot and said, I want to live a long life, what do I do? What would you say to me? I would say uh, don't do anything too extreme. It's important to have a very healthy, balanced diet, plenty of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. And perhaps I might also say that you could try and uh, decrease the amount of foods that have a high glycemic index. So what that means is sugars, which are very quickly uh, metabolized and can produce a spike in our circulating glucose levels and it seems that that can be quite damaging so if you avoid refined 
sugars, the kind of things that are, that are present in desserts, and instead you focused on more on complex carbohydrates, and just really eat a varied and balanced diet. And I think that's really the secret to uh, not only a, a long life but a happy life. So fewer wine gums for me then. I think I would probably cut down on on the wine gums and probably increase uh, the pieces of fruit that you ate during the day. It's <laughs> <laughs> so a long and almost happy life then. <laughs> Alex Gould from the Francis Crick Institute in London. Hello, Katie here with a quick request. The Naked Scientist survey is still open and we really want to hear your views. It's online at thenakedscientist.com slash survey. It only takes a few minutes and if you fill it in, you could win some Amazon vouchers. We read every word, so this is your chance to let us know what you think about the programme or what you'd like to hear more of. That address again is www.thenakedscientist.com slash survey. Thank you very much. Now, on with the show. So far on The Naked Scientist this week, we've looked at how your genes and diet can affect the way you age. But is there anything else I can do to keep myself young on the inside? I wanted to find out specifically about our brains. John Medina is a biologist at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and he's the author of the book Brain Rules for Aging Well. So he took me through what happens to our brains as we age, and some things do actually get better. Uh, there are some things that improve, so there are some good news. You experience fewer negative emotions as you get older. So you tend to look on the glasses being half full. That's a little odd. Most people think as you get older, you get more like uh, Uncle Scrooge than Bob Cratchit. But in fact, you do get more optimistic. Seniors tend to score higher on agreeableness tests. They're more emotionally stable. So those things, you actually uh, start to improve. Some things that actually stay the same uh, is your access to your vocabulary, what we call semantic memory, which is memory for things, and procedural memory. This is your ability to remember how when you get into a car to drive a stick shift. So there's a motor memory involved with that. So that tends to stay, stay the same. But it's not all sunshine and roses. Your working memory begins to fail. That's what we used to call short-term memory. So your ability to hold something in your, in your head for a period of time begins to erode. This may have happened to you, Georgia, where you are walking down to the basement to uh, uh, fetch something. And as soon as you get down there, you completely forget why you went down there. Well, that is in part a failure of working memory, so that erodes. Another memory gadget that erodes is what we call episodic memory. Episodic memory is the ability to remember an episode, so that usually means there's a person. If it's you, it's autobiographical memory. And another one is the tip of the tongue problem. That's what we call it. Its formal term is phonological access. That gets worse as you get older, so there's memory issues that begin to fail as you age. One of the things that is part of the bad news is a gadget we call executive function. Executive function has two uh, uh, founding components to it. One of them is cognitive control, which is the ability to focus on things and the ability to create a heuristic out of uh, 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 just a detail heuristic out of a series of inputs. And executive function does begin to erode when you get older. So there's forms of that as, as well, which is why what's so interesting, we should probably get to the good news pretty soon. <laughs> Otherwise, this will just be one depressing interview. <laughs> Good point. So on that note, John, how do we keep our brains healthy? Take it away. Here's a really good way to improve executive function. Exercise. 
aerobic exercise. Even if you just have to just get splashed into a pool and wiggle around for a while, the fact that you're doing aerobic exercise, even moderate aerobic exercise, you need about 150 minutes in a seven-day period, is both necessary and sufficient to improve executive function in older populations. Another one, interestingly enough, is dancing. In fact, when I was busy writing this book, uh, Georgia, I began thinking, is there any combination of behaviors that you could do all at once? And if you are at all ambulatory and and can go dancing, those seniors, and this was done with randomized blinded tests, their posture and balance improved by 25%, and they reduced the number of falls by 37% just by getting out there on the dance floor. You can also improve uh, certain types of executive function with dancing, and the interesting part of dancing is that it does something that is absolutely magical. You can show that if you reinstitute physical non-exploitive touch in a senior, you begin to have lots of cognitive things go back online, uh, including parts of executive function. Oh, right. So have you taken up uh, salsa dancing since you wrote this book then? Oh, man, I'm going to. I'm a horrible dancer. In fact, the only thing I've ever done my entire <laughs> life is just wiggle in front of somebody. <laughs> dancing, or even light wiggling, check. What's next? Remember I talked to you about the fact that episodic memory also declines with age. This is the, a memory for episodes, so uh, characters that are interacting through time. That actually declines with age uh, fairly substantially. But there is a way to improve episodic memory specifically that has been tested in randomized blinded trials. You need to regularly get into arguments with people who don't agree with you. As long as you guys can remain friends... One of the best ways to improve episodic memory is to argue with somebody in such fashion that it forces you to get on your game. The more intellectually vital you become, the more powerful your arguments are, and the friendlier they are in good discussions, you can actually use that to improve episodic memory. One of the best things I think you could do in the UK is to have friends at a dinner table, one who believes that Brexit's the best thing that ever happened and one who believes that Brexit is next to the apocalypse and have them go at it. (laughs) (laughs) Disclaimer, we will not be held responsible for any family fighting that breaks out over the dinner table. Now, what about brain training? I'm hopefully a a nice guy, but I'm a pretty grumpy scientist, and I have a really low uh, tolerance for uncontrolled or uncontrollable variables. And one that really got under my craw was when I would hear these advertisements that seniors who do Sudoku are going to have wildly better brains. Seniors that do crossword puzzles are going to have wildly better processing speeds. I mean, there's a lot of claims that have been made. When you dig into that literature... The only thing that you find is that Sudoku increases your ability to do well on Sudoku. (laughs) It's what we call near transfer effects. But when you ask the question, does doing Sudoku or doing crossword puzzles translate into other cognitive components that have nothing to do with Sudoku, like does it improve your memory or does it change processing speed unrelated to numbers, the answer is no. What you really want is that you want to be able to play a game and then have it improve your memory so that when you're doing other activities, those activities improve also. That would be the, the, the gold standard for far transfer effects. Now, here's something that's interesting. There are some things that do far transfer effects, and they're video games. 
And one of the reasons why in the chapter is one of the most delightful chapters I wrote the, uh, in it. I was a, a graphics artist and an animator before I was a scientist. And so I have a, a love affair with all things animated and, and even digital. This was the first and only time I have ever seen a video game, literally Georgia, on the cover of Nature. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, there's a brain scan there. And I thought, John Maddox, the former editor of Nature, is probably rolling over in his grave. <laughs> but here it was, a video game on the cover of Nature. And the reason why it's there is that it was the first exercise that has been shown to have far transfer effects in seniors. Executive function is what was measured. Remember, that's that cognitive control and emotional regulation, ability to shift attentional states. What they did is that they got a bunch of 73-year-olds who played the thing for a month. And then they looked at, uh, uh, it's a, a psychometric test called working memory with distraction. So it's an ability to look at short-term memory and distractibility. What they showed is that those seniors, those 73-year-olds who played that video game got a, what's a, what you would call a plus 100 on the score. And without the training, the, the controls that didn't have exposure to the NeuroRacer video game got a minus 100. And here's the big deal. So that's a far transfer effect because this video game is not testing. That video game, you're just playing a video game, and yet it has effects in other cognitive domains. The reason why it got on the cover of Nature, I'm convinced, is that those boosts were still stable six months later. No kidding. Oh, wow. It's a long time. And they weren't playing for those six months. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they just they pulled out. They only played it for one month and were still able to show. So there are things that seniors can do. I'm convinced that the nursing home of the future is going to have a whole room devoted to video games of this caliber. So even if my biological age results are shockingly bad, I can hopefully dance, eat and play my way to a ripe old age. Even if I do allow myself the occasional wine gum. I'll give Zhao the last word. I was once in Texan, there was this bumper sticker that said, um, eat healthy, don't smoke, don't drink alcohol, still die. <laughs> so we have to find a balance. Um, I mean, I try to have a healthy diet and lifestyle, but there are things, you know, like ice cream, for instance, I'm very fond of ice cream. I'm not going to give up ice cream. I'm sorry. Maybe they will cut my lifestyle span in six months or a year. But um, in the end, I think it's worth it. That's all we've got time for. Thanks so much to all of our guests this week. That's Judith Campisi, Maria Peza, Aubrey de Grey, Shao Magalis, Aziz Abu Baker, Michael Conboy, Ewan Sinjin Smith, Alex Gould, and John Medina. Join us next time for a question and answer special. If you have a question, send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.